So I watched a, a reel the other day about the Bering Sea. And in this reel, my little Facebook reel, it's kind of a new thing I'm into. So this, uh, it says, um, this great little video, it said, uh, for, for nine months out of the year, if you look from the Alaskan shore, and you look out to the Bering Sea, and I hadn't run this by our Alaskan contingent, but I think this is correct. So if you're on the Alaskan shore looking out to the Bering Sea, all you see for nine months out of the year is just this cold, dark, seemingly vacant, empty water. But then June arrives, and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, from the dark emptiness of the water, having migrated all the way from Hawaii, hundreds of humpback whales appear out of nowhere, spouting water, breaching the sea, then plunging back down. And then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, thousands and thousands of birds appear, these sooty shearwaters that undertake the longest migration on Earth, flying some 40,000 miles in this winding flight from New Zealand all the way, arriving with the humpback whales to the Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska, such that from this seeming emptiness and monotony and nothingness, all of a sudden explodes this profusion of activity and life. And what's happened imperceptibly below the surface of the water as the June warmth entered, the weather creates the right environment for this superabundance of plankton and grill, which the humpback whales devour. Each whale devouring some 900 tons in three months maybe all they'll eat all year long, and these birds feasting on whatever flows from the mouths of the humpback whales. And so what caught my attention in this is that the reel concludes with this profound statement saying, the opportunities of our tilting planet are enormous and yet fleeting. And much more, we know that our opportunities, yours and mine, they're enormous, and yet they're fleeting on this present tilting planet. That now is the time to make good use of them. And that's what Jesus is going to talk to us about in Luke 17, verse 20 and following. Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not 
Go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this very sober word, but also undergirded with very good news as well, it endures forever. Amen. So we must keep in mind something that is very certain. We don't equivocate. We're not just going through a form here. We must keep in mind something that's very, very certain and sure. In this world, all of humanity and we ourselves are all heading for judgment day. And God is the righteous judge of all things. And as such a judge, he guarantees that one day he will render justice to all. And so our culture has removed any thought of a final judgment far from its worldview. At the same time, we know in our culture, we know what is discussed, what the environment is like, our culture constantly cries out for justice, for evil people to be punished and innocent people to be protected. And our culture longs, aches for this ideal world, for things to be as they ought to be. But the question is, why does our culture have such a persistent, forceful longing for this? 
I mean, given our culture's presuppositions about the world, and especially humankind, why do we have this obsession? I mean, if we're just the result of billions of years of evolution from a particle, if our lives are just the result of random processes and survival of the fittest, then why is it that this longing for things to be set right is so powerful and pervasive? And what we would say is that it makes sense. We would say, well, God has hardwired that into humanity as image bearers, that that's why it rises up with such force within us And you and I know it's exactly right, and it should be much more the case for the believer. I mean, the fact of a final resolution to the tragedy of sin and death, it's indispensable to the gospel itself. All of God's promises must be realized, which means he judges his enemies and saves his people. And so our passage today is a sobering, get-your-attention type passage, and we have to deal with it. And Jesus speaks to us of his kingdom. And so in verses 20 and 21, he speaks of the already nature of his kingdom, the fact that it's already here, and in what form is it here. And then in verses 22 to 37, he speaks of the not-yet nature of his kingdom. There's a sense in which it's not yet arrived in fullness. And we live in this tension right here. We feel it every day, the the already and the not yet. So first then, Jesus' kingdom is already present. It's already present. Well, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God is coming, when the kingdom of God is coming, And they're really interested in that. The Pharisees as a movement were very preoccupied with the kingdom of God and when it would come and how it would come, how they could hasten the day. And that's really why they meticulously followed the law. They thought the whole nation looked like priests, that maybe it would spur God on to realize the fullness of his kingdom right now that all the Old Testament prophecies, promises will be fulfilled, Jerusalem be raised up as the center of the earth, all their enemies will be destroyed, and the glory of David will be ushered in. I mean, a host of Old Testament promises speak like that. Isaiah 2, you know, in, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and, and all nations stream to it. So so these Pharisees approach Jesus and they're asking for signs to indicate its arrival. They want Jesus to say, well, when you see such and such happen, then you know it's, it's almost here. But the implication behind this is that they think God's kingdom is still out there in the future, that it's not yet already here. And they think when it comes, it's gonna be obvious and unmistakable that there will be big signs to prove it. And so Jesus looks at them and responds to them and he he shocks them. It's really a confrontation. Because he tells them how it doesn't come and then he tells them how it's already here. 
He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor they say, look, here it is, or there. So on the one hand, he's saying, you can't calculate its arrivals through some great apocalyptic sign. The planets aren't gonna arrange in such a way that you say it's here. And the word observe was used for medical diagnosis and prognosis or scientific discovery. So again, you can't assess, evaluate, examine, figure it out when it comes or speculate when it's going to come. But on the other hand, he also says you can't go hunt after it. It's not like El Dorado or Atlantis, though they wouldn't have known those cities, but for us, it's not like running after one of those mythical cities, but even probably more what he's saying is, since they're suggesting, or he's suggesting, you can't say, look, here it is, or there it is, they said, you you can't go hunting for this king. You're not gonna search for him and find him and say, well, I've got him, it's here. But the real issue is what he tells them about the kingdom. Because the real issue is there's a great irony going on right here, is that the very king of the kingdom is standing right in front of them, and they have the gall to go up to him and ask him when the kingdom of God is coming. They betray this willful unbelief that you are not who you say you are. They've completely missed the fact that Messiah himself is the sign of the kingdom. Jesus has just healed 10 lepers. Healing lepers was a sign of the kingdom. The kingdom is among them already. And so Jesus tells them how the kingdom is already in their midst. He says, before the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or among you, I'm the sign of the kingdom. I'm showing the rule and reign of God right here. The kingdom is already in your midst because I'm here. The king of the kingdom, I'm exercising God's rule to deliver sinners and sufferers right now. This is a preview of what the world will be one day. You wanna go search for the king? I'm standing right in front of you. And it may also mean he says that the kingdom of God is within you. So you see, God's kingdom isn't first of all something great and obvious, some outward glory and might that you see out there. God's kingdom is first and foremost an inward reality. I love Paul David's trip statement when he says God's redemptive solution would not come by some political revolution or physical war, The primary battle would be fought and won in human hearts. That as powerful as some nation out there appears, it's nothing compared to an impregnable heart against him that's ruled by the evil one and Jesus has come to exert his power on human hearts. That's where the battle is fought. Yours and my heart is the issue. That's the, that's, the get, that's, that's the treasure, is the heart of man, the heart of woman. When you see a healed Samaritan forsake going to the priest and getting reunited with his family, 
and you see him turn around and fall on his knees in front of me and praise and gratitude and faith in me, a Samaritan, then you have seen the kingdom of God come in its power to save a man, not just physically, but to save his soul from a leprosy much worse than what can be observed in his body. That you might not think anything's going on in the Bering Sea, but there's a host of secret, hidden activity bursting to life. Second, Jesus' kingdom is still to come. So notice, Jesus' audience shifts. He was talking to the Pharisees, now he's talking to his disciples. He turns to talk to his disciples because he wants to train them as he approaches Jerusalem, but more is going on here. If the Pharisees can't see the already nature of God's kingdom at work in his first coming, then he won't talk to them about the not yet nature of God's kingdom awaiting them in the second coming. If they, if they don't treasure the initial teaching, he's not gonna give them the more extended teaching. It's a custodial lesson for us to make good use of the teaching we have received. The disciples believe and he gives them more. So notice Jesus shifts from the kingdom of God coming to now the son of man coming. And again, that just makes perfect sense because everything about the kingdom is dependent on the king of the kingdom, so he focuses on himself. One day, Jesus will return and restore all things to God's original, beautiful design, which what you can't wait for and what you're created for. So Jesus gives his disciples and us instruction about its timing. He urges on us seven characteristics about that day and two exhortations in view of that day. So it's seven characteristics. First, verse 22. In 22, he warns his disciples that they will earnestly want his return to happen now. He's talking about the days of the Son of Man, his second coming, when he winds up everything and ushers in the whole new world. He said, there are gonna be days when it gets tough and you're, you're getting persecuted and you're getting tempted and it's a grind and it's difficult and you're gonna miss me and walking like we walk together right now in sweet fellowship and communion physically close together and you're just gonna want to be with me already. You're gonna be like Paul, I desire to depart and be with Christ but your wish will go unfulfilled. I'm not coming back that soon. But underneath this is an incredible encouragement that what you have to look forward to in the end is that that which you so desire now in the present, that on some days you can almost not think about anything else, will most certainly one day be wonderfully and gloriously fulfilled and we're gonna be together. Second, verse 23, 
Jesus guards his disciples about being deceived. You see, the fact that you so desire to be with me already makes you susceptible to getting suckered in by people who claim to be the Messiah already returned. And so watch out for that temptation. Like your heart's gonna be so prone to want to know that I'm already back that if somebody says, hey, in the desert, there's a Messiah, know that it's a false prophet or a pretender because when I return, it's not going to be secret and hidden. In my first coming, I came in humility and lowliness and I kept descending to the lowest spot and I was overlooked and ignored. When I come back, it's going to be different, which leads to the third point, verse 24. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. He alerts his disciples to how he will return when he does. It won't be secret and hidden, rather it will be open and obvious, bright and radiant and brilliant, seen by all from east to west, like lightning flashes and illuminating the whole heavens, that's what it's going to look like when I return full of glory and majesty. Fourth, however, before you see me manifest in all my glory and my ruling nature as the second person of the Trinity enthroned with all authority in heaven and on earth, I have something of first importance to do. And this is the first things of the gospel, such that if I don't follow through with this, none of the other will be realized, and that is, it is necessary, and I must, because I agreed with my Father that we would save a broken, lost people in eternity we made that agreement and it's realized now in the concrete difficulties I'm going through that I have to go to Jerusalem and be lifted up on a cross such that I will conquer hell, death, and sin on your behalf and having paid in full the full consequences of all your waywardness and rebellion against a holy, majestic God, having experienced an eternity of death and hell on your behalf there at the cross, I can undo that sentence on your behalf and give you all of my righteousness and the full forgiveness of God and make it possible that you would leave the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. I've got to do this first and foremost labor before any of it is realized we're going to Jerusalem, to the cross. I will go to the cross before I can get my crown. But fifth, verse 26 through 30, Jesus advises his disciples that his return will be unexpected. And that would lead to a number of temptations. And so he recalls two devastating Old Testament events. 
that during the days of Noah, people were just living ordinary lives. They were just eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And all the while they were doing that, for some 50 to 75 years, Noah was building an ark. And he was preaching the gospel that God is coming to judge. But to them, he was just this absurd oddity. And they went about their ordinary joys, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, heedless of God, heedless of God, engaged in fine activities, but with a heart mindless that they needed to engage with God. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a flood came and sweeps them away from a seeming emptiness, ordinary life, activity of judgment comes upon them. Well, likewise, during the days of Lot, people in Sodom were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. They were just engaging in ordinary business, doing what you do in society, just doing life. It wasn't that it was bad, but as they engaged in all of that, they were completely unprepared to meet God. And what's notable here, we know that the people in Noah's day and the people in Sodom were terribly wicked, terribly wicked. And yet he doesn't mention their wickedness. He mentions just the fact that they were just doing life without considering that they were to live life before the presence of God. And that in itself needs to be stirring to us as we look at the people in Noah's day and in Sodom and say, well, I'm not like those people. And yet that's not what Jesus highlights for us. The danger is that we would just do life and never consider that we need to prepare to meet God. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, sulfur and fire rains down on Sodom and everyone is destroyed. And Jesus says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed one moment, everyone's going about their business, just self-consumed and self-absorbed without regard to God, and the next moment, judgment falls, and it's over. So don't give in to an ordinary life that's self-absorbed. Realize that you're in God's world. Well, sixth characteristic, jump down to verse 34. He, uses, he cautions his disciples that there will be a drastic separation of people. So he says there's going to be a husband and a wife sleeping. Jesus returns, one is taken to glory, one is left to judgment. Two women grinding grain, one is taken to glory, one is left to judgment. There would be this drastic, absolute separation of people. Even people close to one another will be separated People with the same privileges will then be separated. Those who believe in the king, who have really given their hearts to the king, will be taken to glory. Those who disbelieve the king, who have rejected the king, will enter into judgment. They have no one to take the judgment of God for them. And seventh, verses 37, Jesus surprises his disciples that the separation will be final. The disciples ask him where those judged will be left. And Jesus answers, citing this proverb, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's this enigmatic phrase, but really a gruesome reality. 
Just like vultures inevitably gather around corpses, even so judgment inevitably falls upon spiritual decay and death. And it's final. And you see, we deserve that. We deserve that reality. And yet that's the whole reason that Jesus in verse 25 says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Back in the 70s, kind of a 70s icon was Larry Norman who wrote a bunch of Christian rock songs, kind of the first Christian rock artist. And he has this eerie song that really was moving and probably did a lot of good waking people up to how we can just go along with the flow, mindless of God. He has a song where the refrain is, I wish we'd all been ready. The sun has come and you've, the day is gone and you've been left behind. And Jesus says we need to be prepared. But then there's a couple of exhortations. Well, first Jesus exhorts his disciples to resist being conformed to the way of the world, to be urgent and vigilant. So he uses this metaphor in verse 31 of a person in a house that shouldn't go down to the house when they see danger coming and a person in the field that shouldn't go back to his house to get his stuff when he sees danger coming. And it's really originally a verse that had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans came, when the Jews saw the Romans coming, he was warning them, don't go back and get all your things, your treasures, your belongings, you gotta leave them and flee. And Luke uses that to say, look, in a bigger way, that was only a precursor or final judgment. Don't white knuckle your belongings and your career and your success and your treasures. Don't make that your heart's desire. Let it go and be ready and vigilant for my return. I am your true treasure. And that leads to the illustration of Lot's wife. In verse 22, he says, remember Lot's wife. It's the second shortest verse in scripture and maybe the most disturbing verse in scripture. 19th century English preacher J.C. Ryle has this sobering sermon on this text, which I commend it to you. But it's really remarkable that God never says, remember Sarah or Rachel or Abraham or Lot. Like he doesn't say, like, we could remember so many good things about them. What Jesus tells us to remember is Lot's wife. In Genesis 19, you know the story, like the, the angels came and say, we're gonna destroy Sodom, but I'm gonna get you out before then, Lot and all his family, you've got to get out of here before we destroy. And so they leave and the angels say, do not look back. Do not look back. And so she gets free and clear with Lot, with his family, out of the woods it would appear, and yet she looks back and she turns into a pillar of salt. But her physical death really reveals just the true tragedy of her spiritual death. You see, physically she was out of Sodom, but her heart was in Sodom and Sodom was in her heart. She enjoyed so much spiritual privilege being a part of Abraham's family and going along with Lot and being content to go along with Lot and being part of the wider company of the covenant community, but she didn't really own the covenant for herself. It wasn't hers. You see, it requires more than spiritual privileges to save a soul. 
The fact of being under the preached word doesn't save a soul. In fact, nothing so hardens the heart of man as barren familiarity with sacred things. That something is always going on when we expose ourselves to the word, but if we don't act upon it, it has a tendency to harden us. And she was willing to follow along, but her heart was given to Sodom. And it finally was exposed, and she was judged. And it's a stirring warning to us who enjoy such spiritual privilege. And so verse 33, he said, don't cling to your life, because if you do, you're gonna lose them, but give your lives to me, give your hearts to Christ and his kingdom, and only then can they be saved. For that is true life, the new heavens and the new earth and the very presence of your gracious Savior. And so what we're supposed to take away from this passage, which admittedly is a serious passage, in God's grace, and Jesus' grace, he warns of, of, of what we're, we're prone to do in this world, in the system of this world. What we're supposed to take away from this text is may it be a convincing challenge to us all to make good use of the enormous opportunities we have in the fleeting life we're given. Jesus sets life before us as a gift and urges us not to fail to receive it. And so may it be the case for all of us. Amen, let's pray.